We're going to continue worshiping the Lord through uh, our time in the Word. We believe that we offer up our praises and songs and our gifts, and we worship the Lord in that way, but we also believe that worship is twofold, that God also speaks back to us, and the authority is not the man in the pulpit, but the authority is His Word. And so if you have Ephesians chapter 6, I'd invite you to open it up to verse 4. We're going to look at one verse. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would speak through your servant, that you commanded Timothy to preach the word in season, out of season, to always be ready, to explain it, to rebuke, to correct, to teach that we might be uh, equipped for every good work. Your word is living and it is active. There is authority and power in it. And so I pray that you would use it to transform your people and that you would allow me to come alongside of you and to open up the mysteries of God. Would you do this by your spirit and for your glory? Amen. There's a name of a book, and the title of it is the Out, Out of the Darkness, the story of Mary Ellen Wilson. Uh, you might not know that name, but you will, be, you will know after I finish this up. Uh, there was a man by the name of Tom Wilson, and Tom was an immigrant from Ireland. He left Ireland in the 1800s, and he moved to America due to the Irish famine, the Irish potato famine, and he made his home in New York. And something happened, right? And he laid eyes on a woman named Frances, and he was struck at first sight. And within a matter of months, Tom had asked Frances to marry him, and they were married. And this was 1861. Something else was happening in America in 1861, and that is the, the Civil War. And so imagine this first generation of immigrants who came from Ireland who moved to America to find themselves in the middle of a country in conflict. And so Tom, he left for freedom and he could not fathom freedom not being a reality for every American. And so Tom, along with hundreds of other Irish immigrants, uh, was a part of what was known as the 69th Brigade. It was an entirely Irish troop. And Tom went to war against Francis's wishes. And over the period of a couple years, they, they corresponded and um, wrote back and forth. And uh, Tom wrote her regularly. And at that time, it would take one to two months before his letters made it to her and vice versa. And uh, his wife, Francis, would oftentimes spray per perfume on his letters sent to him so that he would never forget her scent. And then one day, everything changed. She got a letter and it wasn't from Tom, it was from a man by the name of Ryan Sullivan. And Ryan Sullivan was one of Tom's best friends. Tom had been killed in combat and Ryan had to write a letter to Tom's widow explaining how he died and, and what happened and how much he loved her. And within a matter of moments, a matter of opening that letter, her life changed forever. She went from being a married woman with the anticipation that her husband would come home to knowing that he would never come home. She would never see him again. She was a widow, but was, what was also true is she became a single mother. 
that Tom and Francis had conceived a child right before he went to war, and Tom never got to lay his eyes on her. And so she went from waiting for him to come home, this dream of a family, to within a moment, it's crushed. And as you can imagine, uh, life spiraled out of control for her. She did get widow's pay, and, and she was given a check every month, but uh, she was poor. And so the, the landowner who owned her apartment sold it the same month that her husband was killed, and the new landowner uh, doubled the rent. And so all of a sudden, her rent and overhead was doubled. All of a sudden, her income was lessened. She got a widow's check, but she needed to work two jobs. And so she worked at a hotel as a laundry, a person who washed clothing, and she did some sewing on the side. And she had to take her widow's check and give it completely to another woman to raise her daughter. And so she had to work two shifts. And what would started out making these regular visits to see her daughter you, it turned into weeks and then a few months because she just she, she could not afford to travel to go see her. Well, her, her boss made sexual advances at her and she refused him and she was terminated. And she ended up marrying a man who was an alcoholic. And little did she know that marrying forfeited her widow's pay. And so she no longer had money to give to the woman to take care of her child. She was unemployed and married to an alcoholic. And you can imagine how the story ends. Uh, her, her daughter was taken, and her daughter was given to an almshouse, and an almshouse gave her daughter to a family who adopted her. And this family adopted her, and there was a number of children they adopted, but she was uh, one of the ones that they adopted. And there was a Christian lady by the name of Mrs. Wheeler who was a neighbor, and Mrs. Wheeler saw them bring this little girl in but months had passed, and she never saw the little girl again. And so she was a Christian woman, she being nosy, the nosy Christian. She went over and she knocked on the door and says, hey, I, I want to help. You, you, you look stretched. You look like you have too much uh, to do, and, and I, I'm offering my, my life to help. And they saw, a, they saw little Mary Ellen. She was malnourished. She had bruises on her face, on her arms, on her legs. She was dirty. Uh, they found chains in the house where it was obvious that she had been chained to a bedroom and Mrs. Wheeler did not know what to do. And so she reported this to the authorities and the authorities could do nothing because back then there were no rights that protected children. And so uh, Mrs. Wheeler appealed to the, uh, the Society for the Prevention of the Cruelty of Animals and she made the appeal that Mary Ellen is a part of the animal kingdom. And because she went to those authorities, they were able to seize that little girl. And that was the same year, 1874, that started the Society for the Prevention of the Abuse of Children, which if you ask anyone who is in that realm of child protective services, that was the groundbreaking case that was the backdrop to Child Protective Services today. It was back then in 1874, and it was Mary Ellen Wilson. It took us a while as a nation to get our minds and hearts around the need to protect and care for our children. And here's the thing that, that's not true, that that has always been a part of God's heart, that that has always been something that he's cared about. 
And you see it in the fifth commandment. If you were with us last week, uh, the fifth commandment was honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And last week we talked about how important that is, that, that God would give honor to parents and he would command children to honor their parents at the expense of being stoned if you dishonored them. Now, here's what we forget, that there is a side B to that commandment. And the side B to that commandment is parents. You need to care for your children. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it is better for you than a millstone be tied around your neck and you thrown into hell. You, you see the imagery? God is, cares about the children and how they treat their parents, but he also cares for parents and how they treat their children. And in our passage this morning, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how do we best care for our children in an unideal world. So that's the first point. It will have a couple sub points. How do we best care for our children in an unideal world? Now, why am I saying an unideal world? Because the last I checked, we're not in the garden, right? We're not in the garden. We're sinners. The world is broken. And here is what you'll notice, that if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God created man and woman. God walked the woman down the aisle and presented the woman Eve to Adam, and the two became one flesh. And then God says, and they multiplied and they had children. So they had Cain and Abel and Seth. But notice the order, the structure in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It is God creating marriage between one man and one woman. And that relationship is in place. And then you start to build on top of that with children. Now, here's the thing. We're outside of the garden. And do you want to know what Paul does? He says that is still true. And you see it in the structure of Ephesians 5 going to Ephesians 6. Remember in Ephesians 5, wives, love your husbands, submit to your husbands, husbands, love your wives. And then he brings up children after he talks about marriage. That's why he says, children, honor your parents, your father and your mother, right? So he assumes he could have said, honor your parent as in singular, but the biblical norm, what, what the ideal thing is, in an, uh, even in an unideal world, is that children would be birthed into a family that is bound by the coveted estate of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the ideal, and it doesn't change. Now, why does that matter? If you've had, oh, I remember when we had our first, had our first kid, that a lot of the parenting advice that we were getting and it surprised me at first, and now I see why. But, but baby, I know you love your daughter, but you need to honor one another, right? Baby, the, the, the key to a healthy, a healthy parenting, it starts with a healthy marriage. And, 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 and I get it now, right? Because the scriptures would say that children are like arrows in our quiver that we sharpen. And then one day, guess what's going to happen? You're going to shoot them and they're not going to be in your house anymore. Right. And so the, these old mothers, right, these these old saints, they're coming alongside of you. Look, I know you want to hold her and build your life around her. But I'm telling you, you got a spouse in the household that you got to take care of. Right. That's why for fathers, our impulse to hold our daughters and to be with our sons 
That's a really good impulse. But here's the thing. Being a good father actually starts with loving their mother. Right. And it's the same thing for mothers. Right. Being a good mother actually begins with loving the man that helps you bring that child into the world to begin with. Now, I can think about a few practical reasons why marriage, one man, one woman, covenanted together in a home, raising children. I can think of a, a few practical reasons why that is, is good. Here's one reason, right? Raising kids is hard. If you're going to parent, well, and I hear the parents saying amen, right? They're going to take your money. They're going to suck it up, right? Your time, your energy. I mean, and, and I love it, right? But let's be really honest. It's hard. It is hard. And here's the beauty of having another person in covenant with you. Y'all don't have those days where it's just rough. Like you're tired. You might be sick. You work long hours, stress on the job. You know the feeling when you can come into the house and be like, Tad, you're it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I, 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 can't, I can't do kids, right? You, you know the feeling? That feeling when you walk into the house and you know they have needs, they have needs, and you also know I'm not in this alone. There is somebody I can say, tag, you're in the game. I just need one night, right? Just, just, I need to, I need a break, right? On a practical reason, right? It's just, it's healthy. On another reason, it's just, we love our children, but we have other needs that they can't meet. Just the need for companionship, the need to, 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 for intimacy, this need to, to be with someone like us, to, to have conversations about adult things. Like the, those needs don't die when children show up. They're still there. And so having a person. But here's the thing. I, I don't think even think that those two things are the most important. If you remember what we talked about last week, that marriage between one man and one woman, it images something so much deeper than we can imagine. It images the church and it images the gospel. It images what it means for Jesus to come and to lay down his life for his bride, to wash her, to sanctify her, to love her, to pursue her. It images the church and how the church responds to her lover with obedience and with honor and submission. And what's happening is, is that is being communicated to our children through our marriage. And so here's the thing. It's never a matter if the gospel is being preached in the home. The question is always how accurate is it, pre is it being preached through the way that we interact with one another. And that's why divorce is painful. And it starts to it starts to hurt. Because behind the divorce, there's something else that we're communicating. That when you have sort of this idea that that, all right, I have eyes or a heart for another person outside of my marriage. That, that what are we communicating to our children about the love of Christ for the church? That, that, that if we can sort of just move past our marriages and treat them trivially, and when times get hard, what are we communicating to our children 
about their view of God. Does God leave me? Does he leave me when I blow it? Because I see someone is leaving me when they've blown it, right? And so behind everything that's happening, that that is what's happening. Now, I'm not saying God, God can redeem that. He does redeem that. But that, that's a reality. His design was that we raise children in the context of a, of a home. So it's done in the context of a spouse. The second thing is done in the context of biblical structure. You sort of see it in the text that, that, that look at verse four. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's missing there is mothers. He assumes that a wife is in the home. He assumes that, that children honor your father and your mother. But when he gives the command in verse four, he does not mention the mother at all. Now, this, this, now why? I mean, it's not because the mother doesn't have a, an important role in the home. She does. If you remember Paul and Timothy, he discipled Timothy. And you remember his commendation to Timothy. Timothy, your, your, your grandmother Lois was a believer. Your mother Eunice was a believer and they poured into you. Proverbs 31 was written by a woman, right? A woman wrote it to her son, King Lemuel. And what does this say? That, that her children rise and they call her blessed. That, 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 that words of wisdom and grace and knowledge, they, they, they come out of her mouth. And so the scriptures are saying over and over again, yes, women shape and have a role with the shaping of children. But notice here, he does not address the mothers at all. Now, the question is why? Because he is applying what he laid out in chapter five. In chapter five, what did he say? That the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church. And so when he talks about parenting, do you want to know who he addresses? He goes back to the head of the house. He goes back to the man. You, you are spiritually over this home. And therefore, as the covenant head, I'm up talking to you. Now, it, this, this trickles down into the family. But I think he's applying what he just talked about. This is important because I think in our culture, we tend to think that that men go make the money and women raise the kids. And here's what the gospel says. Nope. Dad, you're needed in your own homes. We're needed in our own homes. And what I love about this text is notice how he says children honor your father and mother. I, I think that's important because. Here's the thing that 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 God is giving honor to fathers and mothers. And he didn't ask your kids permission for it. He puts honor on you when they are born into the world. Honor is stamped all over your head. And here's why it's important, because if you parent children, I know what I do, at least I. I, I I have I see my faults and my weaknesses. And one of the things that I do to sort of I kind of envision this kind of honor stick. And as long as I'm doing everything right, I'm, I'm worth honoring. And then when I blow it or mess up, that those are some notches down the stick. And then then I, I'm impulsive. And so I'll stop and get Legos. Right. <laughs> I'll do this stuff that is that is just impulsive. But in my heart, what I'm what I'm really trying to do is is get those notches back on the stick to make up for all these deficits. Right. And here's the thing. 
God says, get off the treadmill. You're a father and you're their father. And I'm conferring honor on you that has nothing to do with you as an individual. Fathers. Here's the thing. Fathers are important. But fathers aren't ultimate. If you remember what we talked about last week, a few weeks ago, that in, in, in Paul's day, fathers had what we call the, the power of the father. And in his day, it meant that his authority was absolute, that there, the laws of the land were bent towards his favor, that no one could sort of challenge what a father would say as it related to his estate. And, and, and notice, right, God doesn't argue with that. But here's where the kingdom of God deviates from the kingdom of the world. Out there, there was no accountability. Here in God's economy, there is. He gives honor, but he also holds us accountable. The sheer fact that God, through the pen of the apostle Paul, has words to fathers, it communicates that we do answer to God. There is someone who has the ultimate power of the father, and his name is Yahweh. Now, here's what I mean. Remember last week I said that, that the way that this letter would have been read, it would have been read in a, in, in a setting like this, and Paul would have been, the, the, the pastor would have been reading through it, and he would have gotten to, to chapter 6. And the way that we read this is we, we don't understand that Paul, uh, he actually addresses the children directly. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, in a day when it was easy to marginalize children and push them aside, no, when they come into the house of the Lord, God Almighty is going to speak directly to them through the word. But guess what? And, and if you're like me, this whole week, whenever my kids kind of got out of step, I was like, you know, you ought to be stoned for that, right? <laughs> the, the Bible say it right here. Honor your father and mother, right? It's right here, right? And, and, and here's what can happen. You can walk around your house like you better put some respect on my name. Right. You know, your chest is all out like, I, you know, God is telling you he's commanding you to respect me. Right. And the kids are like, OK, I get it. I get it. Here's the thing. You read down a few more sentences. Guess who Paul has words for now? The father. Fathers, do not provoke your children. So think about it. Think about it. Think about what that would have looked like. The dad's walking around, you better put some respect on it. And now the kids say, oh, it's somebody else and, and has higher authority than you. You better put some respect on his name. You see how it works? You see how it works? You have authority, but it's not ultimate. As you parent me, you're, you, you need to answer to the, to, to the parent up above. That's the biblical structure. Next thing is we parent as stewards. Stewardship, by definition, it acknowledges that what we have, it has been given to us by another. James in James chapter one, he says, all gifts, all good gifts come from where? Above. That's why Cyril read Psalm 127. Children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. And so when you look at the scriptures, what scripture would say is, yes, you conceived but it was the Lord who gave you the child. That's why the psalmist would say, you knit me. You knit me in my mother's womb. You did that. In other words, scripture says children come from him. That's the first principle of stewardship is we've been given them by someone else. The second thing stewardship acknowledges is that there isn't a day of reckoning. 
There is a day of accounting of what we've done with our families and with everything God has given to us. And you see that in Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who went on a journey. And before he went on the journey, he left talents or gifts with his people, with his servants. And then he went away. But notice what it says. And then the master came back to see what his servants did with what he entrusted to them. In other words, I think this is what's behind the passage when Jesus says things like, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it's better than a millstone be tied around your neck. What Jesus is really saying is, you're going to have to see me one day, face to face. And how you've treated these little ones will be called into account. A reckoning. Third, it also means that because we're stewards and we've been given gifts and there is a day of reckoning, then our goal as stewards is to do what the giver of the gifts desires us to do with the gifts he's given. Therefore, I think the three most important questions that we can ask parents is this. What has God given to me? What does he desire for what he has given? And what are we being called to do with and for them that will serve that end? Give me an example. All right, let's say that this, play, this is Plato. This is a, a napkin, right? Um, let's, let's just play that this is like Plato. And let's say somebody gave you a, a box of Plato, right? And, and so they're, they're giving it to you, right? And on the other hand, they're also saying, this is what I want this dough, this lump to become. I want it to become something, right? And then everything in the middle is to take this, what was given, fashion and work in such a way so that that does not stay like that, that that becomes what he wants that to become. And so you have to sort of step back and say, well, what is the raw material that we've been given? And here's where... It, you, you have to know that what the material is, because if he's giving you Play-Doh and you put water on it, that doesn't work. Right. If it's Play-Doh and you put it outside and leave it in the sun without the top off of it, it cracks and gets hard. And so it does matter what the raw material is. It does matter what we've been given. Make sense. So here's the question. What are we working with when we hold this child, when we when we give birth to this baby? What is the raw material? Here is what Andreas Kostenberger says about this, and it's in our quote. We have to remember that our children are not merely disobedient. They are also sinful, and they are disobedient because they are sinful. Therefore, children ultimately need salvation and not merely parental discipline. Children are not only sinful, but they are also simple, as in used in Proverbs, and they need instruction. They lack sense and are naive and gullible, which makes them vulnerable to the wrong influences, if not trained in character. Unless corrected, what starts as naive simplicity leads to full-grown folly. Hence, they also need wisdom. Hear what he's saying? Your kid may perform above average and they may not be problem children, but they still have a problem before a righteous and holy God. 
And the problem isn't primarily bad behavior. The problem is ultimately that they're sinners. And so what sinners need is Jesus and salvation. But they don't they don't only need that. They also need wisdom to grow up and to live life skillfully as God has desired. This is the raw material that you're working with, parents. I know they're beautiful and I know you love them. And they are sinners conceived in sin, mysteriously united with Adam in need of a savior. Here's the beautiful thing. The raw material is sinner, but it's also able to be saved, able to be transformed, able to meet and have an encounter with the living God that radically changes them now and forever. It's the raw material you're working with. The second question is, well, what is God's desired outcome? He answered that in last week. Look at verse three. When God makes this promise to children, this is the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. In other words, we don't have the right to tell our children what we want of them. The posture of a steward is to ask the one who gave us the children, what is it that you want for them and what does God want for our children? He wants them to have a long life in the land, which we interpreted last week to not only mean a long and good life on the earth, but more importantly, union with Jesus. The one who is the resurrection and the life, that that is what God wants for our children. And we can want children for a lot of reasons, right? We can want children to, to add joy into our homes. We can want children who will be successful. We can want children who will take care of us in our old age. We can want children because they will give us grandchildren. We can want children for numerous reasons, but the Bible says the chief end of having children is that the Lord might have little worshipers of Yahweh running around the earth. That the, the, the chief end of, of, of children is that they might know and enjoy their creator. That's the chief end. You know what you're working with and you know what the chief end is. Well, what's the work? What's the input that has to go into taking this raw material and by God's grace, seeing them become what they could not without this intervention? It's the heart of parenting. Now, let me just say this. Salvation does not work. Like you put these inputs and I'm guaranteed these outputs. Man, I wish that that I, I, I wish that it was that easy. Some of y'all have parented kids and you've done everything right by God's grace. And you don't yet see the outcomes that you want. And some of you have blown it. And you see outcomes now that you couldn't dream of. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Your effective parenting does not save a soul. Only God can do that. However, the Lord has means to that end. 
What is he asking that we do with our children now that they might be transformed from this to this? He said he lays it out. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In other words, your anger, your anger, my anger will not transform this into that. Anger won't do it. The anger of men will not accomplish the righteousness of God, right? So the question is, well, what are you after? Notice what he says, bring them up. And I want to stop right there because it's, it's in my opinion, um, this isn't the first time Paul uses that word, bring them up. If you go back up to chapter 5, verse 29, you'll see it. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes. That's the same word, nourishes. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but nourish them up. Nourish. Now, here's the thing. That word, it, it, it means not only to give food, but to give food that is consistent, regular, and proportionate enough to sustain life. In other words, it's not, hey, let me give you one big old feast on the first day of the month, and then we'll feed you again in two months, right? This idea of nourishment, it's an ongoing diet of food. Food in the morning, just a little bit. Food in the midday, just a little bit. Food at night, it's, it's nourishment. Give me enough that is proportional. Now here's the thing, what is the economy of parenting? It, it, it's not food, it's time. Time. One part of parenting, what our children need is our time. FaceTime, touch time, play time, time to laugh. Half of the battle, beloved, is just showing up. It's just showing up. But they don't, they don't only need us to show up. He also says, raise the, bring them up, nourish them in the discipline. I think you need to lay Hebrews chapter 12 on top of this passage, because in Hebrews chapter 12, he starts to talk about discipline in the Lord, that the Lord disciplines us as his children. We are his beloved sons and daughters. And so when the Lord punishes, and this is different from judgment, judgment for God's people was taken care of on the cross. And so now when we're, when we're disciplined, it's not a punishment for your sin. It is the Lord disciplining you and I as sons and daughters. And what does that discipline feel like? It is uncomfortable for a moment, but God is doing something through it, right? It's when he withdraws his presence, being grieved over sin. Maybe we've harbored this sin and we've hidden it and all of a sudden it gets exposed and now we see it for what it is. All of these things the Lord is sort of using to let us know that, hey, that is wrong. That is wrong. There are consequences. This is right. And so in other words, that's a part of parenting. It's discipline. But it's not just discipline for discipline's sake. It's discipline in the Lord. This means that our discipline with our children, it needs to be patterned after the discipline of the Lord. Not done in anger, but from a place of love. 
The third thing they need, that, that children need is instruction. Parenting is not just about time and discipline, but also teaching about the Lord, his heart, his word, his church, his character, his son, his spirit, his people, worship, how he's worked in history, his power, heaven and hell. This is why God told the Israelites to keep these appointed feasts so that when your children see them, they will then ask you, why are we doing what we're doing? And you will have an answer. That our children need instruction. These three legs, they form, these three things form the legs of biblical parenting. Time, teaching, and discipline. If you want to imagine a three-legged chair, it does not stand if you remove one. All discipline with no time and no instruction is abuse. Right? And all instruction with no discipline and no time, we're just giving lip service to our children. That these three things, they, they go together. That that is the environment for parenting. I'll give you my life. I'll give you time. And when we're together, I will teach you. I will make sure that you're exposed to the means of grace. And then I will discipline you if you need to be disciplined. That is a part of parenting. It is healthy. And here's the thing. This works in good times and in bad times. I'll never forget. Uh, this was a really pivotal conversation and my conversion. And this is why I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember graduating with honors, and I remember moving to Ohio, and I remember the signing bonuses. I remember just everything that was happening in my life at the time, and I remember calling home and just kind of bragging and just sharing with my mom just all these good things happening in my life. And you know what that was met with? But do you know Jesus? Have you found a church? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm being really, really honest. Have you found a church? You know rich people go to hell, don't you? Right? I'm 22 years old. I'm thinking I'd have made it. And my mama say, no, you ain't made nothing yet. <laughs> you see, she couldn't whoop me, but she was still teaching. And I was like way up there. I needed that. I needed to hear that from my parents. I needed that. And it works not in the heights. It also works when your kids blow it. Right? Because they're going to blow it. They're going to disappoint you. And they're going to be down and out. And they're going to be sad and they're going to feel like failures. And they're going to feel unloved. And you know what? They need to hear the same message. You're still loved by God. And God can use this right here to bring you into a saving relationship with him. Amen. And if God has to take you through this, that you see him, 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, when we know what we're parenting for, it never changes. The last thing is we parent as children. Paul Tripp has a beautiful quote. I'm just going to read it. He says, I am more like my children than unlike them. And so are you. The reality is that there that there are few struggles in the lives of my children that aren't in my life as well. Materialism, relationships, wanting my own way, attraction to the world, subtle idolatries, you name it. This admission transformed my parenting. Instead of approaching them with my self-righteous outrage, I moved towards them as a sinner in need of grace, needing to confront a sinner who needs grace. God's plan is to make his invisible grace visible to our children by sending parents of grace to give grace to children who need grace. And parents who know they need grace tend to want to give grace to the children who are just like them. We parent as children saved and loved by the living God, not having it all together, still broken, still on our way. And when we realize the depth of his love, his adoption, the father's love for us and the way that he is patient and kind and faithful, that that starts to work itself out and how we treat our own children. We parent as children. I'm going to close with this. We talked about caring for our children in an unideal world. What about caring for our children in unideal circumstances? If you live long enough, then you know that not everyone has a mother and a father in the home. If you live long enough, then you know that it's possible for a dad to be killed in war and for a mother to become a widow and a single mother in a moment. It's possible for a dad to die in a car accident and a mother to become a single mother in a moment. It's possible to be in a marriage and to have kids and someone walks out on the marriage and the kids are still there. It's possible to think that this man or woman loves you, all of a sudden you get pregnant and dude is out of the door. You see, it's an unideal circumstance. And if we're really honest, a lot of people find themselves in those circumstances. Now here's my question to you or to us all. Does the agenda change? No. God desires the very same thing for your children. If you're a single mother or a single father, he desires that they know him. He desires that. And what they need is time and they need discipline and they need instruction. And I know it's harder. It's harder because you don't have anyone to come home and say, tag, you're it. 
it's harder because you, you, you got a lot on you. And I hear you and I see it. The question that we have to ask is, who fills the gap? Who fills the void? And here's what you see in scripture. God is a father to the fatherless. He is a defender of the widows. The Lord watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. That you see it all in scripture, that God's heart, it breaks for single parents. His heart breaks when things happen that are not ideal. And the Lord says, I care. You're not beyond grace. I love you with an everlasting love. And I care about your children. And I care about their well-being. And I want them to know me. I want to be a father to them and a God to you. And here's what you see. I could, I could read you 44 scriptures where God says this about himself. And here's what else you see in scripture. Listen to what Job says. I rescue the poor who cry for help and the fatherless who had no one to assist them. Job 29, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Psalm 82, do not touch the ancient boundary stone or encroach upon the fields of the fatherless. Proverbs 23, 9, every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce in your towns and give them to the Levites and give them to the widow and give them to the orphan and give them to the fatherless that they might eat and be satisfied. Religion that is pure and acceptable in the sight of the Lord is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, we have to connect the dots. Because so much in our circles, right, in reform circles, we assent to this fact that God cares for the fatherless. We'll scream that from the rooftops. And you want to know what else is equally true? Who does God use to care for the fatherless? Who does he use? He tells them, you bet not touch the boundary stones. You bet not beat your crops all the way to the end. Pure and undefiled religion is this that you go and you visit them. It's not enough to assent that we care about the widow and the orphan. It's not enough to give lip service to this, that the way that God flushes out his heart for the poor, his heart for the fatherless is through the church. There is not enough money in our government to do all of this. Go ask people who are in foster care, who are in these homes. There is not enough money in the budget to do what needs to happen. So my prayer, I've looked at census data in our own neighborhood. I'm not thinking about everywhere else. 39206, 10,000 homes in our zip code. One in three houses are fatherless. One in three. 
The first home is a married couple. The second home is a single person living with no kids. The third home is a mother. Only 4.5 out of the 100% is a single father raising kids alone. Now, we're a community church for the city, for this neighborhood. We're responsible. And so I want to salute you. You who come on Wednesday nights and chase kids down, you're standing in the gap. You who sit on committees and make decisions about how much money committees get, you're standing in the gap. You who teach Sunday school, you're standing in the gap. You who coach baseball teams, you're standing in the gap. You who give to this church, you're standing in the gap. God cares for the fatherless. And by God, he's using this church. So I'd implore you to ask yourself that one question. How does my life showcase God's love for the fatherless? I'll let the Holy Spirit lead and do what he will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.